everybody! Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are, we are. The Classic Gaming Brothers. You know something that I forgot to mention in the last two episodes? What? I went to Retro World Expo. <laughs> you did go to Retro World Expo. And yeah. we didn't do a Retro World Expo pod. No, we didn't. But it was pretty good. It was a pretty good time. Did you buy anything fun? I did. I bought a couple of games I wanted. I bought Dudes with Attitude, which was an NES game, and Pyramid, another NES game. And I I picked up a premium edition game, Cathedral, and uh, I picked up some pins, and uh, Dad bought me an Amiibo. An Amiibo? Yeah, like one of those figurines you use for your, oh. your Wii, or your Wii U, or yeah. your Switch. Yeah, he, he bought me a Sonic one. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. He also took a lot of photos of me with random people. And, uh... Tim Kitzow, Kitzow, and yeah, and Tim Kitzow and uh, our he, buddy Slack. Is that the second time you've met Tim Kitzow? It is. It is. He did he remember your first time? No. Did you tell him that you met him the first time? Yes, I told him that I was like, oh, I, I still have my original copy of NBA Jam, and you signed it. And he was like, oh, that must have been a few years ago. And I was like, it was a few years ago. Thank you. He's a nice guy. Did you say boob shakalaka? No. Uh, he said boom shakalaka. <laughs> he said, he asked me what my name was, and I said Zach. And he was like, Zach attack, takes the ball from LeBron, boom shakalaka. <laughs> and I was like, that's good. Did he say, is it the shoes? He did say, is it the shoes? Was there a lot of people to see him? Yeah, there was there was, there was actually a couple people in line with me. So he was complaining that EA has not done a new NBA Jam and they didn't do one for the anniversary. And he was grumpy about it. Beyond the games that you picked up, uh, you went with our, our third brother, Evil Jim X. Yes, Evil Jim. Yeah. And he bought anything fun? TurboGrafx-16, which uh, he got for a good deal. I don't want to like tell people what he paid for it because I feel like that's disclosing his financial... But he, he had a good deal. Yeah, he, I, th- I think he paid a good amount and I think he paid much less than uh, what I've seen them go for and what people were selling them for. So I think he had a good deal overall. Nice. And I'm sure he'll stream it. We also I also bought him a copy of his favorite game, Time Cop. So that's ironically his favorite game because I think he hates that game. <laughs> what is funny is we were like looking for a copy of Time Cop everywhere. We went to like every booth looking for a copy and we would ask people like, you got like bargain games like where's the, we're looking for time cop people are like we're not bringing time, you're not going to find time cop here so we we went around we found a couple of booths that we thought would have time cop big boxes of snes games nothing in them like just like sports titles stuff like that and we found like i was like talking to jim i was like i don't know if we're going to find time cop and i look up and i see it a vhs copy of time cop <laughs> and i was like we found a time cop and jim was like but it's not the time cop that i want um and then one of jim's buddies who we were with actually found a copy and i paid for it and gave it to Jim. Nice. That's a fun story of Retro World Expo. Uh, Retro World Expo is a retro game expo that happens in Hartford, Connecticut. It happens every year. I got to go to it once because it was delayed outside my wedding anniversary. And now since COVID is more normal-ish, I probably will never go again. Uh, However, with Retro World Expo, because it fell on this weekend... Uh, it fell. It was a uh, weekend in August. That does mean that Extra Life, which it fell on last weekend, is now free. So Seth, you and I can do Extra Life this year. That's true. Great. I can replace sleeping in a comfortable hotel room with staying up 24 hours somewhere in Massachusetts. Anyway, we should probably get into this episode. Recently, I've been playing a game called Timeline, which was done by 
Ernicue Studios and was released okay. in May of 2020. It's a stealth puzzle adventure game where you play as this girl and you have to move her. You can move her around and you drag the mouse over like the squares. So you can go and you select the number, like you make a path for her essentially along this really weird setting. You're like, it's uh, isometric and you're in like a section of like a, almost like a facility, but there's clearly nothing around you. Like it's just like a floating, maybe like a hallway or a bedroom or whatever. And it's like... um isometric so the wall like it's cut away so you can see the girl and there's doors and there's like switches for doors and you have to like do the right switches to get through the doors and you eventually as you progress you find like a bridge and the bridge is out so you collect this ball of energy and then you use your time power to bring the bridge back which is cool you then have a like a flash forward event where you watch yourself go through an event and then die and then you can rewind time and play it forward and do different actions to be able to then play it forward in real life you essentially precog your way through a section of the game so it's it's cool it's got like a really cool artsy vibe on it it's got uh there's a cat in it and there is a little girl with precognitive power and you have to escape this weird land that you're in which is kind of like a a factory that is as is floating around um there's like robots that have like weapons and stuff that come after you it's enjoyable i got it through humble bundle and i am going to play it on my steam deck and i got a bunch of lighter games like that um like timeline um i got hollow knight um i got home which is like a horror adventure game i got a bunch of those kind of like lighter in like graphics and style and for uh, my steam deck and for playing offline while i'm on an airplane so yeah so yeah time lie by Ernicue. the game that i recently was playing was super 3d noah's ark definitely a game i've talked about before but this is a christian video game created by the company wisdom tree i've been playing the version that was re-released in 2015 on steam in 2015 on steam by pico interactive the original game came out on the super nintendo in 1994 and ms dos in 1995 the pico version on steam is based on the ms dos version it's a pretty fun game game it's pretty fun because the entire game is built in the wolfenstein engine so if you've played wolfenstein before you've played super 3d noah's ark in the game you play as noah who has to put some rowdy animals to sleep using food to do this you must slingshot food at high velocity into the animals mouths uh, so that they eat the food and fall asleep and you know they're you're not killing them because they have little z's that come up from their face after you've shot them in the face with food also noah apparently didn't get the memo from god uh, because noah brought a bunch of goats and ostriches onto the ark like hundreds of them not just the two of like one male one female deal uh he brought like hundreds of goats hundreds of ostriches so in this universe noah was like i'm just gonna get all the animals that i can find i don't care what they are and he just found a bunch of goats and ostriches and that's what he got and yeah the game is a first person shooter built in the wolfenstein engine uh from my understanding wisdom tree officially got license of the wolfenstein engine from id software back then you just had to like pay a small fee and id software would give you the engine and they didn't care what game you made with it i know there's like an urban legend which 
which I think I've mentioned before about how id Software gave Wisdom Tree the engine because they were grumpy that Nintendo had censored Wolfenstein 3D so heavily for the Super Nintendo. And I, I asked John Romero. I said, John, I didn't say that. I said, Mr. Romero, <laughs> is that true? And he said, no, we were giving it to anyone who paid for it back then. <laughs> so... <laughs> He was like, didn't matter. <laughs> he also said they weren't really that upset about the edits that Nintendo had to make to the game because they were still getting paid for it. So it didn't matter what they edited. Today's episode, we're on going to talk. On it's, today's. A ver- it's a very special episode of Classic on- Gaming Brothers. Should I start doing that for, for every episode? Just say on today's episode. This <laughs> yeah. week's episode. Yeah, like uh, like the Dragon Ball Z announcer. Last week episode, they talked about Atari Yar's Revenge. This week, they're talking about the Atari Jaguar. Anyway, on today's episode, we are talking about a console that Atari created that is not one of the primary consoles that people remember Atari creating, and that's the Atari Jaguar. In the previous episodes, we've covered Atari's history from their rise to arcade and home console prominence to their decline during the video game crash, to their eventual split and the creation of the Tengen brand. While half the company was working on arcade titles and Tengen software, the other half was still producing Atari-branded consoles. After the 2600, both the 5200 and the 7800 were released. These mostly sold poorly, but were able to keep the Atari name in the public spotlight for their home consoles. Atari also sold home computers with the Atari ST line of computers, hitting the market in 1985, and the Falcon releasing in 1992. However, as time progressed, so did technology. So the video game crash happened in 83, and Atari was arguably were one of the harder hit companies in the video game crash, and they just could not get back into the market. And by the 90s, companies were already moving to in through the 16-bit era. Sega had the Sega Genesis, Nintendo had the Super Nintendo, and the 3DO was out with the 3DO which we talked about in an earlier episode with Jim. And Atari needed to be able to not take the 2600 and just continuing modifying that. They needed to do something new. And they had to get out there with something and to be able to compete against uh, the 16-bit consoles. Or they weren't going to be in the video game market for much longer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and the 3DO wasn't even 16-bit. It was 32-bit. So they had to like really catch up. The the Jaguar as a system actually began development in the early part of the 90s, but it was developed under a different name and by a company that wasn't Atari. So the story there begins in 1986, when three developers left Sinclair Research and settled down in Cambridge, United Kingdom, to create the company Flare Technology. These developers, Martin Brennan, Ben Cheese, and John Matheson, created the company Flare Technology and got to work developing a system for the company Amstrad, which was a competitor for Sinclair Research. This system became known as Flare 1 and was designed to be used in home computers and game consoles. However, it would end up being used mostly in arcade cabinets, such as a line of quiz machines that were developed by a company called Bellfruit. Atari contacted Flare in 1989 and asked them to develop a chipset for an upcoming game console that they were working on, a 32-bit console called the Panther. However, the Panther was soon cancelled, and at the time they contacted... 
flair they were also like while you're making this 30 32 bit console see if you can make something a little more advanced at the same time so flair did just that and they started work on a 64-bit system for atari and after the panther was fully canceled atari told them to put focus onto the 64-bit system this 64-bit system was called the jaguar which was first shown off at the chicago consumer electronics show in august of 1993 atari decided that the focus of their company needed to be on the jaguar they needed to push the system to market make sure this was the only thing they were focused on and dismantle nintendo Sega, 3DO, and a little up-and-coming company called Sony. So, they completely discontinued support for all of their earlier products. This meant all of their computers that they had released were now discontinued. The Atari 2600, which they were still servicing, was discontinued. The 7800, the 5200, previously released. The Falcon, which came out two years prior to the (laughs) announcement of the Jaguar. All done. Discontinued. And Atari shipped out 20,000 Jaguar units for their test launch, and all 20,000 units were sold you know what that means they were on track for a success that's right so atari struck a deal with ibm giving them around 500 million dollars towards manufacturing costs with this they were able to launch these the system the jaguar in november of 1993 under the price tag of 249 dollars and 99 cents which would be about 500 bucks in today's money along with the launch of their console they also launched an aggressive advertising campaign the jaguar was sold as the world's first 64-bit console and their slogan became do the math some of you believe your system is the most advanced in the universe let's review the numbers sega genesis is 16 bits 3do is 32 bits the atari jaguar is 64 bits which is more advanced clifford Hmm? 16 and 32 are less than 64 so with 64 bits 3d graphics real world animation and lightning speed that you can only get with jaguar which is more advanced clifford can you repeat the question Jaguar! 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 However, this claim for bit supremacy was ultimately controversial for Atari. Atari stated their system was 64-bit because it had a Motorola 68000 and two coprocessors, which both did 32-bit instruction sets apiece. So, in Atari's mind, and the mind that a marketer would think, 32 plus 32 equals 64. Thus, you could make the claim that the system was 64-bit. While this tactic may have tricked the less knowledgeable consumers and lawyers, magazines at the time called their bluff. In an editorial from Electronic Gaming Monthly, EGM, it was commented that if Sega did the math for the Sega Saturn the way that Atari did the math for their 64-bit Jaguar system, the Sega Saturn would be a 112-bit monster of a machine. And Atari couldn't really refute that claim. And Jim and I talked about this during the 3do and the jaguar i feel like had a similar issue and that was developers weren't really ready to write in these powerful machines they weren't able to fully maximize what the machine could do and ultimately kind of scared developers away at least that's what we learned when we talked about the 3do right people didn't really want to work on them they preferred working on stuff that they knew um and the stuff that they knew was the 16-bit stuff and now like the newer stuff that would eventually come out but well i think also from a consumer perspective some person you know joe schmo buying 
buying a system off the uh, from the store. The whole bit war thing was kind of already, I think, in my opinion, starting to fade by the era of the Jaguar, and largely be probably because Jaguar had this stupid do the math slogan where the whole bit war thing was really a a conversation about the 8-bit to 16-bit transition right which was a huge transition that's such a noticeable transition and back in the day when the sega genesis dropped and the nes was still available and the super nintendo was not yet out that was a big deal for sega to be like look at nes games versus look at the sega genesis games look at the difference whereas with like 32-bit games that were coming out compared to 16-bit games i mean yes some 32-bit games are technically superior i mean look at like crash bandicoot blah 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 but at the same time there were certainly games i think you could look at on like the sega saturn and being like this could totally have come out in the sega genesis <laughs> like right and because the developers didn't necessarily develop to maximize it because sometimes a game doesn't need to maximize the bits to right. be a good game now by early 1995 the jaguar's price has had already dropped from 249 to 149 so in that'd be going from 500 to 250 bucks and atari then invested in infomercials to help promote the jaguar so in two years they dropped it by a hundred dollars and they started schlepping it on like qvc imagine watching a like 40 minute infomercial on the jaguar <laughs> no but but we even think about like from like okay if the ps5 came out right yeah the ps5 came out 600 bucks and then let's say they released in 2020 this year they just cut the price in half and started like schlepping it on like the home shopping network or like qvc there goes their reputation (laughs) you're probably like um a if you bought it for full price you probably feel cheated and we'll actually talk about how the infomercial piece helped in the numbers section yeah that's helped in quotations now let's talk about some of the games for the atari jaguar the jaguar Jaguar may not have been a quote-unquote true 64-bit console, but its games are actually fairly impressive, at least the ones that if you look at from a graphical standpoint, maybe not from a gameplay standpoint sometimes, but definitely from a graphical standpoint. Most of these games were released on cartridges, though there were there were a few CD games that were um, for the ill-fated Atari Jaguar CD add-on. Which, um, A, did not help the Jaguar sales, and B, when you put the CD Jaguar on a Jaguar, it kind of makes the console look like a toilet. That is not a good profile for your video game console, complete with the fact that the CD add-on opens like a like a seat, so it really does look like a toilet. There were some titles that were ported from other consoles to the Jaguar, such as Doom, because Doom has to be on everything, doesn't it? I think I think you legally have to have Doom on your on your device. I think there's like when you create a device there's like a thing you signed that says like doom will come out yeah i feel like also these i th- the 3do did this too and i feel because the 3do had doom on it yes a very poor port of doom but yeah but i feel like these consoles that weren't so there was the sega and like the nintendo and then there was like the 3do and the atari jaguar and i feel like the 3do and the atari jaguar were trying to like be computers and also consoles at the same time Right, but on all four of those consoles you've named, there was Doom. Because there's Doom on the Super Nintendo, Doom on the Sega 32X, Doom on the Saturn, Doom on the PS1. I was I was thinking more about the other games that were on right, the, right, right. Uh, the Jaguar. I know Doom is on everything. I just meant for like the other, because there's like uh, like theme park and stuff like that, which you'll go on to talk about. Yeah, no, no I, I get that. It, and, and the Doom port that is on the, the Jaguar is actually... 
really competent. It's actually a really good port of Doom, uh, to the point where other ports of Doom are largely based on the Jaguar port. So when you see Doom ported to the 32X, it's based on the Jaguar version of Doom. The only problem with the Jaguar version of Doom is that there is no music that plays during the gameplay portions. Music during the menus, music during the, uh, the results screen, dead silence while you're actually playing the game. And let me tell you, Doom's music adds a lot to Doom. It's, it's largely heavy metal based. It sounds great, and it kind of adds this sense of like catharsis when you're playing through it however as many people who are fans of the doom jaguar will tell you just load up your you know favorite metallica cd or something you're good to go uh there was also a port of syndicate which was a real-time tactics game uh, also available on dos and there was a theme park port which is a construction and management sim where you build theme parks there was also a port of wolfenstein 3d which updated the graphics and added new weapons. The Jaguar port of Wolfenstein 3D was actually directly based on the SNES port, retaining a lot of the same changes, but they added back in the Nazi references and the blood. There were also some exclusive games to the Jaguar. Uh, there was a 3D shooter called Cybermorph. There was also a first-person shooter, Alien vs. Predator, uh, which is a great game. You can play as either a Marine or a Xenomorph or a Predator. And those are three things that are fun to play as. The first person shooter, Alien versus Predator, was uh, it was also released on like the PC and stuff. There's a different version on the PC. The Jaguar version is exclusive to the Jaguar. Is it? Because there's also Alien versus Predator two on the PC. Yep. Yeah. The AVP on the PC is also a first person shooter. It's also a game where you can play as as the either the um, Marine Predator or um, Xenomorph. Yeah, their old campaigns. It's a great game. Yeah. Um, but the, the class, the one on the PC is a slightly later version, I think. I think the Jaguar one uses more like Doom style, like flat graphics. There was also one of the most successful games on the Jaguar, which was Tempest 2000, which is a version of the game Tempest. Uh, Atari made a bunch of these like Game 2000. Uh, the Jaguar version, though, ended up selling 30,000 copies, which is pretty good, um, especially for the sales of the Jaguar, which we'll talk about. So, Seth, how did it do? Well... The system was immediately met with criticism upon release. The packing game Cybermorph was compared unfavorably to Star Fox. Other games that were available, like Trevor McFur in the Crescent Galaxy and Evolution Dino Dudes, also scored poorly. The console was also criticized for its controller, which was considered bulky and uncomfortable. For those listening at home, the controller that the came with the Atari Jaguar is your standard three-button joypad, but it has a large numpad on the bottom so it's like take your take a take a, a joypad and then take your numpad and combine them sales wise atari was struggling as mentioned in the history atari cut the price of the console by a hundred dollars but even that didn't save it from the newly launched sega saturn or the upcoming sony playstation atari felt so threatened by both consoles that sam Trammell, the dead ceo of atari threatened to sue sony if they released the playstation for under three hundred dollars people were quick to call Trammell a hypocrite as Atari was selling the Jaguar at a loss. And we're starting to see also the loss-leading perspective where video game companies and video game console manufacturers would sell video games for a loss, or video game consoles for a loss. Because ultimately, if you bought a video game console, you had to buy video games for it. And if you controlled the publishing or the development of your video games on your system, like Nintendo does with the Switch, and uh, Sony has exclusives on the PlayStation, and you go back in time, Nintendo, you know, uh, you know, when consoles had specific cartridges that were required, when you could do that, you can afford to sell games at a loss. 
Right. Like Sony right. can afford to sell a console at a loss because they control a lot of the publishing. And Nintendo can 100% afford it. They've always been selling at a loss because they control the publishing. I'm going to draw a lot of comparisons back to the 3DO where the Jaguar was going out and they were making the Jaguar themselves. Atari was creating it. The 3DO went out and schlepped their brand and had other people make it and pay them a licensing fee. Both of them really didn't have the push to sell units through. The lack of games, which was also the what 3DO encountered, the lack of games available for the Atari, the controversial marketing, the overall lack of enthusiasm for another cartridge-based console when CD consoles were here, uh, really just pulled the rug under from Atari Jaguar. You really need to have a strong library of games at launch and then to continue to support it with a strong library of games. The Nintendo Entertainment System, for example, had 716 known licensed games released on it throughout its entire life, which was somewhere in the realm of, it was from like late 80s to early 90s. Yeah, a Jaguar had 50. Even on its shortened life, it had 50. You need to have more. Uh, so out of 700 games, there's going to be duds. But at least you have a bunch of games that aren't duds. 50, if, if a bunch of them are duds, you do not have a bunch of games to back it up. So by November of 1995, Atari began layoffs and they ceased development of the Jaguar. While Atari denied allegations that they were leaving the market, in 1996, it was reported that the Jaguar developers had lost communication with Atari's main office. In 1996, there was an SEC file that indicated that Atari had decline in revenue from 38.7 million in 1994 to half 14.6 million in 1995. Not, not a good year-over-year decline. <laughs> no, you do not want to lose half your revenue because that's your gross revenue. So if you were netting 10 million and you lose half your gross revenue, you can't keep the lights on. They also reported that they had only sold 125,000 units. And still had 100,000 units in inventory. Yeah, also not good. Now, in April of 1996, Atari merged with JTS Incorporated and formed JTS Corporation. The bulk Jaguar inventory would remain unsold, and they were moved to Tiger Software, who privately liquidated the stock. JTS also privately began allowing other companies to purchase the cartridge and console molds, such as a company called Imagine Software, which created a dental imaging camera using the molds, the cartridge slot on the Imagine Hot Rod camera, camera was used for an optional RAM expansion port. So yes, at some point back in the late 90s, early 2000s, you could have gone to your dentists and seen an Atari Jaguar mounted to the wall as the dental camera. JTS eventually sold the Atari brand to Hasbro in 1998. After the sale, Hasbro let the patents for the Jaguar fall into the public domain and declared that the console was now an open platform, meaning there are a lot of homebrews for the Atari Jaguar, which is great if you're really into the Jaguar. The homebrew scene on the Jaguar is fantastic. Like Wikipedia has its own list of just Atari homebrew games. Now in 2014, the molds were purchased from Imagine, the dental company, for a Kickstarter for a system called the Retro VGS, later rebranded as the Coleco Chameleon. However, after delays and issues with the Kickstarter, including a case where two prototypes for the Coleco Chameleon were proven to be fake uh, during public showings, Coleco withdrew their name from the system and it became the Retro VGS again. It was then cancelled and the molds were sold to a man named Albert Yoruso, who is 
the founder of the Atari Age website. So if you contact Mr. Yoruso and you offer him a nice sum of money, you too can own the original molds for the Atari Jaguar if you want to ever want to use them for anything. The Retro VGS outside of the Atari Jaguar, the fact that it used the same case, is such a, also an interesting thing. So the Retro VGS, those two prototypes, one of them was literally a Super Nintendo inside the shell of an Atari Jaguar. And they were like, look at the games we can run on it. And they just played like Super Nintendo homebrews. The other one was just a display prototype. It didn't actually run um, and it had a graphics card inside of it. And that was it. So when they opened it up and they were like, here's the motherboard. It was literally like an NVIDIA GeForce that they just dropped in there without any wires. Oh, that's fun. You could actually buy an Atari Jaguar today for about $350 to $400, depending on when and where you get it. It's actually gone up in price. I assume when Tiger privately liquidated the stock they who knows what they did they probably sold it for parts but it would be interesting if there's just like a pallet of unsold atari consoles sitting out there in some warehouse well whoever had that probably sold it based on the video game retro video game collection scene going up anyway uh that will do it for our atari jaguar episode will do now we're going to get into our Retro Rewind segment. Seth, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, so Zach had me playing Mario is Missing, which is for the NES and was developed by Radical Entertainment and published by Nintendo. Uh, this is an educational game released in 1993, so it's great that Zach's giving me that educational hit back. I need more educational in my life. And it was released for both SNES. It was released for the SNES, NES, and MS-DOS. Uh, you play as Luigi, which is pretty cool. Uh, what is not cool is it's not really a Mario game, even though it's because Mario's in the title. However, he is missing. So you're you're not playing as Mario. You're playing as his brother, Luigi. Throughout the game, you have to explore various cities, uncover clues, missing artifacts. Then once you've put all the artifacts together, you can find out where Mario actually is. So he's not missing. And once you find Mario, the game is over because he's no longer missing. So does the game hold up today? Do you want to play an educational game that's Mario themed but doesn't have Mario in it? If you do, then yeah, sure, you could probably do worse. Do you want to play a Mario game? Can't do that with Mario's missing because Mario is missing. <laughs> Next week, I want Zach to play Alien vs. Predator, the PC game that was released in 1999. Cool. I think I actually own a copy of it. I was inspired by this episode to make you play it. Thanks. Well, last week, Seth gave me Mega Man 2 for the NES. Uh, this is a great game, and I love Mega Man. Uh, not only does it have a great soundtrack and also some really solid platforming, um, but it also is just a really fun game. However, I suck at Mega Man games. Um, I will honestly admit that I have never gotten very far in a Mega Man game, any of them like any of them, uh, but I will still play them and I will still play Mega Man 2 and enjoy it. I think it's one of the best original Mega Man games for the NES. However, if you don't like very hard games, I do not recommend Mega Man or Mega Man 2 or any of the Mega Man games for that matter. They're all very difficult. But if you want to play a really good game and you want to play a game that uh, I think has aged very well, Mega Man 2 is of course the game to try and play. It is Nintendo hard. I will, I will let everyone know that. We've talked about that whole Nintendo hard thing. Mega Man 2 is one of those games, but it's still very fun, and the music is amazing to the point where I've just listened to the music while studying before because it's like very good. Uh, next week, Seth, I'm going to let you take a break from edutainment titles. I want you to play a game for the Game Boy Color. That game is Warlocked, which is a very good game, and I hope you enjoy it. Whoa, be the first good game that you gave me. Wow! 
Ah, uh, anyway, if you liked this episode, you want to hear us talk more about obscure game consoles like the Atari Jaguar. The Atari Jaguar is not that obscure. I don't know what I'm talking about. It is a toilet. <laughs> it is a toilet. If you want to hear us talk about more toilet-shaped video game consoles, send us an email to classicgamingbrothers at gmail.com or visit our website at classicgamingbrothers.com. You can also reach out to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, or Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch are Classic Gaming Brothers. Our Twitter is CG Brothers Pod. Be sure to find us on all the available podcasting applications that are out there, such as Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, everything. We're there. Find us find us find us anyway that's it uh seth do you have anything that you want to contribute to this conversation don't play games like my brother uh don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i have been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that is right right right